If you've never been in, a, in Zion when I've done one of these messages, um, um, I encourage you to uh, strap yourself in for what is normally a whirlwind. Um, do anyone remember Rolf Harris? No, not for later in his life, but earlier when he was uh, a nice person. Um, he used to do artistic stuff as part of his message. I've got a friend, Pete, an Auckland Polynesian guy who paints gospel messages in high schools. And um, I love the guy. He's so creative. I'm not that creative. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw what you've got in front of you and I invite you to fill in the gaps. Um, guys, we might want some house lights to help the people, even just a little bit of light at the back of the room. Ultimately, uh, what you're going to, um, uh, what we're going to realize is that it's all about Jesus. And uh, that is the, the punchline, that is the exclamation mark, that is the point of our faith. Jesus will be glorified for eternity. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Some of us are choosing to do it now, but ultimately everything in creation will bow before Jesus. And, and this is the narrative that points to Jesus, but sometimes, and, and this, is, this is kind of, I suppose, um, the problem we have in life is it's not a straight line. Now, I don't know about you, uh, um, perhaps the wives in the room could confess on behalf of their husbands, but I'm going to be vulnerable. There was a time when we were traveling uh, in California, and we were looking for a destination. It was on the map. We could see the destination. We were heading in the right direction. And then Kathy said, you've missed the off-ramp. Now, that's, that's a problem, right? Well, what's worse in this situation is the off-ramp was actually on the other side of the freeway, and I was heading in the wrong direction. So, so sometimes we get ourselves in the wrong place, and we think it's the end of the journey. What I'm about to show you is one example of where we know what the destination is. Even if we get diverted along the way, um, God says it will be so. We have had all kinds of trouble that we would never have imagined in just the last few years. Who would have predicted in our lifetime a pandemic of global proportions with so much controversy attached to it? But not the first time in history, just the first time in our history. But the last time there was a pandemic, God was still on the throne, and he said, my promises will remain. You might have a crisis on Monday, tomorrow. Perhaps your hair doesn't go the way you imagined it would before you leave the house. God says, I'm still on the throne. You might have some significant news with regards to your health or someone in your family, and it rocks you to the core, and God says, I know the end of the story, and it's going to go the way I planned it. We're, in the, we're at the end of the book of Haggai. I've really enjoyed this series. It's been different than I actually first thought it would be, um, but that's cool. There are four prophecies in Haggai. I'm not going to go through them. You can watch the series on YouTube or listen to it on our church app. Um, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get good um, teaching on your phone. We've, we've read the fourth prophecy. Today, I want to point to the fourth prophecy. But you need to understand there's a bigger picture at play. And this is what I got so excited about as I looked at the final prophecy of Haggai. And what he was saying to, not just to God's people then, but to God's people now, is God says, I've got it sorted. It will be so. It will be as I declared it to be. And that's good news for you. 
Over here, you might want to understand, you, might, you can see on your thing, I'm going to write it in here, Jesus is the Messiah, which means the promised one of God. In the Scriptures, before He turns up, there are 127 specific prophecies that predict Jesus coming. And if you'd like to write them in, look, I'll do them in a different color so you can see them. Look at this. Look at how creative I am. Two colors. Genesis 3, verse 15, the very first time we see a promise of Jesus. God says to the serpent, you're the deceiver, but I'm going to send one who will crush your head. When God turned up and made a promise to Abraham, a guy who really didn't know which way was up, he said, out of you will become many nations. And through you, Abraham, even though you have no sons, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah is saying to the people of God, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth was the precursor to a movie that you might remember. But in fact, what he said was, well, you want proof? I'm going to send you a baby through a virgin, and he will be called God with us, Emmanuel. That's a prophecy. In Isaiah verse 9, and you can read the passages, but verse 6 to 7, God is speaking about, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son will be given. We sing that at Christmas time. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 12, this is a longer passage. I'm not going to quote it all, but I was reading it uh, again this morning. And it's just good news, people. It's just good news. It's disappeared out of my Bible. I think I just wanted to read you verse 10. But, but the whole thing is good. You know, Jesus is bruised for our iniquity. Um, he bears the sins of the world, but in, um, he says this, um, when his life is made an offering for sin, he, predicting Jesus, will have many descendants. He will have a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that's accomplished, he will be satisfied. God says, it will be so, because I have said it will be so. Psalm 16, verse 10 promises that Jesus will come. Psalm verse 2, I didn't put it on my list, but, that, but I will send you the one who would, be, who would ask for the inheritance, and I'll give you the nations of the earth. Malachi 4, the very last page of the Old Testament, God is predicting that he will send a deliverer. And um, I'm just really mindful of time, so I don't really have time to read all these scriptures to you, but I would encourage you to do what I've done this week and just sit with this list. Take this home. Take a photo of this when it's finished, if you can decipher it, and just spend time reading the Scriptures out loud. Malachi 4 verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his loves let out of the pasture. Um, well, that's about to be um, carving season, so that's pretty relevant for us. What I love about all of these is this phrase that I found when I was studying this week. This writer says this, and I'm going to write it this way because it fits, but this is a unified promise plan of God. And I love that phrase because unified means it all comes together. 
When you start to understand the story, the story of Scripture from the beginning to the end, you see that it's all part of one story. It all comes together. Scripture points to Scripture. Unified promise plan. That promise plan to me speaks about God is sure that what He has promised, it will be so, and it will come to pass. And I find that hugely fascinating, that God would orchestrate history, the 6,000 years that we know of, and He would write it in a book, and we get to enjoy it. We get to read it, we get to study it, we get to participate in it. And you're part of the story. What I want you to see today is, look, all I'm doing is drawing what you've got in front of you. When you see this, you will see yourself in the story. But I want to start back here, and there's a reason why I want to start back here. And you're going to see it. You might be going, what on earth has this got to do with Haggai chapter 2? All will be revealed. Because on your page over here, it actually starts with David. And it starts with a covenant. And a covenant is a promise, and God says, I'm the God of covenant, and not only will I make you a promise, but I'm going to satisfy the promise in me, not you. So God's promises are always yes and amen in Him, which means you don't get to do it because you don't get the glory. He's going to satisfy it, so He is glorified by all people. That's how God works. That's how He set the covenant up with Abraham. And there's two specific things that I love about this covenant that he makes with um, David. The first one is in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Do you remember a guy called Saul? He was tall and the most handsome man in the land, the first king of Israel. And God said to him through the prophet Samuel, you're an egg. You're a fool. Your behavior has revealed you, and I have taken your kingdom. I have torn it from you. And behold, says God, I have searched, here, read it up here, and I have found a man with a heart after mine, and I will establish his kingdom. And Saul's like, what? And this is before David is called out of the pasture. He's still looking after the sheep and slinging stones at, at trees. God says, I've already chosen a man who has a heart like mine. And what I love, this has become a powerful um, is it Second or First Chronicles? First Chronicles 17 is an amazing chapter for you to read this week. But just verses 11 to 14, God says to David, I will raise up out of you and I will establish a throne. For when you die and join your ancestors, David, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your sons, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple. David thought he was meaning physical. He wasn't. He was talking kingdom. I will build his house, and I will secure his throne forever, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. And look, it's talking about Jesus. And this is the promise he gives to David, and it's a covenant, and a covenant that God will satisfy this is not new to you if you've read the Bible. And so what we see is there's a, there's a succession that God says, through you I will, I will raise up my son and his throne will rule for eternity. But if you've read Scripture before, you know it doesn't quite look the way you and I would design it. And even, even in that, if you look at the son of David called Solomon, and you read the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, Read the lineage of Jesus, it says, and to David will be born a son, Solomon, and through Solomon, and so on, and that's the genealogy of Jesus. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. But if you read Luke chapter 3, 
And I'm just going to write these references for you so you can look at them. Verse 31, you will see that Jesus will come through Nathan. And you're like, oh, God, you don't know what you're doing. You're confused. You got it wrong. But, but, but what, what, what God says, it will be so. I'm going to establish through David a covenant that means that Jesus will be on the throne forever. And we get a bit distracted sometimes because it doesn't add up. I'm pointing you to Haggai shortly. Because in the middle, you can see three boxes I've put here. Three boxes. This is where we start to get the context for today. Because if you look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12, talking about Solomon's genealogy, or if you look at Luke chapter 3, and I think it's verse 30, 27, Luke 3, 27, what you'll find in the lineage, even though it starts with Solomon or Nathan, in the middle there are three guys the same. Three guys named the same in the scriptures as part of the lineage. So it's almost like these start off and they go and they cross over here. And then they go different to get to Jesus. But what we know is that Jeconiah was the king. And out of Jeconiah came a son called Shealtel. And out of Shealtel came a son called Zerubbabel. And now you understand how this connects to Haggai. Because we've been looking at Haggai. And in Haggai and the prophecies, we know that the Spirit of God came upon Haggai, who prophesied the word of the Lord to Joshua, Yeshua the priest, and to Zerubbabel the governor. So what we know is that in here, God is working his plan so it will be so. And this is all very exciting except it doesn't go the way you and I would design it. Because the reason why Jeconiah was so important in this history is that he was the, he was the king who God said through Jeremiah, uh, it's not going to go so well for you. So Jeremiah 22. We have what? Here it is. It's called the exile. Okay. And Jeremiah was the prophet at the time of Jeconiah, and he'd been ministering for about 25 years, and he'd just been giving the word of the Lord, giving the word of the Lord, giving the word of the Lord, and people weren't listening. The people of God were sitting there going, well, you're speaking on behalf of God, but we're not going to do anything. Sorry, we're not changing our ways. And so, here's what Jeremiah says as a prophecy from God to Jeconiah, and it's Jeremiah 22. You can write the reference in the box down here. Which box? Put it in this box here. Jeremiah 22, and it's verses 24 to 27, but especially verse 30. Listen to this. As surely as I live, says the Lord, I will abandon you, Jehoiakim. Oh, so I need to explain. Jehoiakim and Jenekiah, same name, same person, different names. And that's really confusing to get your head around, but the Bible does this all the time. Jeconiah and Jehoiakim are the same people. I will abandon you, abandon you, even if you were the signet ring on my right hand. I will cast you off. So this is called in Scripture the curse of, I'll put it here, 
Jehoiakim. It's referred to as God cursing him. And he says, you were a signet ring on my hand. That's your filling in your gaps on your forms. If, even if you were a signet ring, meaning if you were the mark of my authority, if you were the mark of my royalty, if you were the mark that gave me the ability to command armies and send them into battle or to open up the provisions of the storehouse of the kingdom, even if you were my signet ring, signet ring I'll cast you off says God, the curse of Jehoiakim. And then it gets worse. Verse 30 of Jeremiah 22. This is what the Lord says. Let the record show that this man Jehoiakim was childless. He is a failure for none of his children will succeed him on the throne of David to rule over Judah. So what we've got going on down here is we've got this curse of Jehoiakim, and basically what God's saying right here, at this moment in time, Israel is sinning, Jehoiakim is a bad king, I am breaking this lineage, and you will have no sons. Now, does it not contradict what God said over here? Does not break, doesn't it break this line? Because both lines come through Jeconiah, Jehoiakim, same guy. Both lines come here and God says, that's it. The curse is the curse. It's broken. And you're Jesus and you're in heaven and you're going, oh, stink, the plan never worked. Before the beginning of time, I said I would become the salvation of all nations. And he's like, dad, we didn't work this one out. You look at me like I'm not telling the truth. God says it will be so. This will be really important to us in a minute. Well, it's always important to us. So what happens is the exile. So the exile is when Nebuchadnezzar turns up and he, he sieges, he fights against Jerusalem and he ravages the city, steals all the gold and he takes the clever people he leaves all the poor people behind. He takes the clever people, the ones out of the royal family and in the house of God and the temple, and he takes them back to Babylon. And so, biblical history will tell us, down the bottom of your page, that how many years in exile? Seventy years in exile in Babylon. And what's interesting to us is Babylon is also referred to as Persia, and that will be interesting in a minute. But just over the page in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25. So I'll write this down so you've got it. You can take a photo of this later. Jeremiah 25. So this is the prophet of God, verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12 of chapter 25 it says, this entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and the neighbors will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after 70 years of captivity, I will punish them. This promise that God says is, you didn't want to do it my way, you're going to do it this way. Another reference is Daniel chapter 9. And the first two verses. What I love about this one in Daniel is Daniel's in Babylon. Remember Daniel? The guy that went into the lion's den? Guess who put him in the lion's den? Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel's in exile 
and God says, hey, look at the book. He says, I read the scriptures, and I determined that we would be in exile for 70 years, and I set myself to pray before the Lord. Read Daniel 9. It's beautiful, his heartfelt prayer interceding on behalf of God's people. It's just a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Daniel chapter 9. So even though it's going rough, God says it will be so. It doesn't look like it will be so, but God says your time will come. And just so you know, so we can fill in the left-hand side, Jehoiakim is restored. And that's a key thing for us here. He is restored, and you can see that in the very end of 2 Kings, 25, chapter 25, it's the last verses in, in, in the book of Kings, 27 to 30. There was an evil king that rose up, but what he did, it said, listen to this, it says he lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, took him out of captivity, clothed him, and sat him at his table. So this is restoration here, and, and, and that's a key thing, because if, if he hadn't been restored in exile, then this would have been permanently broken, according to the curse of God. Which brings us to the prophecy in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. The Lord says to Zerubbabel, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will destroy nations. But you, Zerubbabel, Haggai, here it is here in your form. This is a key verse for today. Haggai 2, verse 23 if you, if you listen to me read it before, what did God say to Haggai, through Haggai to Zerubbabel? You will be a signet ring. You will be. Now, does that sound familiar? How amazing is God that he says to his grandfather Jehoiakim, if you were a signet ring, I would cast you off my finger. And he comes back to Zerubbabel two generations later in exile in Babylon and calls him back to Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel went to where? Jerusalem as, did you read, did you read the book before? Governor. Thank you, Phil, because Phil's been preaching it. <laughs> Governor. So, so in this line, God says to David, through your sons I will establish a kingdom for eternity, and it shall be so. And it gets broken, but then what happens under the Babylon king? This is not the king of Judah. This is not the king of Israel. This is Nebuchadnezzar, and then it's Cyrus and Darius, and, and the evil Murdoch, I think his name is. Not quite, but sounds like Murdoch. And under this king in Babylon, Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jehoiakim, is appointed as the Persian governor and sent. So look at Ezra, chapter 2 and 3. Look at Zechariah and look at Haggai. The Persian king says, I need to appoint someone to run the place someone that could administer what I want to see happen. 
that, that's the decree of Cyrus. And he picks the guy who's the grandson of Jehoiakim, thereby reestablishing this line. Not the church leaders, not the minister, not the prophet. The pagan king reestablishes the line that would lead to Jesus. I just found this fascinating as I looked into it. Because, let me just finish a couple more things on here and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. One of the things, if you've followed what we've taught or even just shown you in the scriptures, is the two things that Zerubbabel came back to do. One was rebuild the altar. And you can see this in the first four or five chapters of Ezra. But the second thing, which we find in Haggai, is that he says, I want you to build my temple. And at the beginning of Haggai, he says, why do you think you should live in a really flash house while my house lies in ruins, says God? Wake up, people of God, sort your priorities out, and get building on things that are eternal. Essentially paraphrasing the first prophecy. And what I'd just like to propose to you is that the altar is when God establishes our, re-establishes our discipline of worship. And I find this really significant considering what I told you at the beginning of our time together when God said to us just this week, I want you to worship me in spirit and truth. The time is here. The time was coming, but the time is here when I've called my people to worship me in spirit and truth. When God rebuilds the altar, he calls us to a place of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, in order that we would worship him. But secondly, he doesn't stop there because if that was the case, we would just have a glory cloud in our own bedroom or our prayer closet or the car as we're driving. And God says, that's not how my kingdom advances. Your life's important to me, but it's not the end of the story. God says, I want you to establish my temple. The temple is not a building. In our case, the temple is our lives, that we would be the dwelling place of God Almighty, God Emmanuel with us. And this, my friends, is about partnership. Because God says, you build the house and I will come and dwell in your midst. One of the sayings that we have here at Zion is God's dwelling place is our dwelling place. Everybody needs a spiritual home. Everybody wants to be in the place where God dwells in our hearts so we can partner with him to see the mission of Jesus established. And it's the whole point of the fourth prophecy. Is Jesus, um, God says, I need you to see the fabric and I need you to connect the dots because that which was broken I have restored in order that you would be my signet ring, that the promise of the Messiah will come to pass and you will partner with in that mission. That's what he's called us into. This is the whole fabric for this, this, um, this message, this prophecy. So I've kind of, I warned you it would be a whirlwind. I'm really, like, I, you, you, I've given you the scriptures because I want you to read them. I've given you the timeline because I want you to think about it. I've given you the key process here because you can see how God works things. But why would I bother doing that at all? Here's the deal. In our lives, diversion will come. We get off the rails. Life doesn't go the way we think it would. Um, you get a shock diagnosis, you get a shock bill. Uh, you get a shock event in your family. Um, you crash your car. You break a nail. The washing machine doesn't work. Life's tough. One of your kids runs off with someone you didn't appreciate or like or even want them with. It just doesn't go to plan, you know? My expectations 
are dashed. God, what are you doing? Are you on the throne? Because my life's not going the way I wanted it. It's called a diversion. And we make the mistake of thinking the diversion is the destination. We make the mistake of not trusting God when he says, it'll be so. And I'm trying to show you through the scriptures that even though God said this promise would come and got broken, he restored it to bring back the final outcome. And I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your life is like today. I don't know where you are with regards to all the things going on in the world. But God says it'll be so. God says it will be so. Because diversion, you can look at it as a diversion or a pathway to your destiny. And often, to get us to the promise, God has to take us through a process and it hurts like crazy. But we've got to embrace the process in order to reach our destination, which is our destiny. Those words are interchangeable to me. So a couple of things I want you to consider as we land this time, and I really am asking you to think about this and pray with someone about it. A couple of key things I want to highlight here. This, to me, is a major marker in the story. God, through a pagan king, would restore Jehoiakim to the table. Now, there are consequences for his actions. Is he restored as king? No, he's not. Is his grandson restored as king of Judah? No, he's not. The consequences for Zerubbabel are significant because of the sins of his grandfather. But had Jehoiakim not been restored by God's mercy, this would not have happened. So here's what I want you to think about. There's no evidence in the scripture of what Jehoiakim did to get restored. And I think partly the message is God's mercy, not his actions. But I have to wonder if the king of Judah is in prison and he knows the scriptures because he was raised in the scriptures and he knows the promise God gave to Abraham, uh, Adam and Eve, that he gave to Abraham, that he gave through the prophet Isaiah and through David. He knows the scriptures. I have to wonder if he is looking at the past and he is, what did I write this down? He is dealing with his past. 2009, I had a time uh, where I was overseas basically for eight months asking God, what the heck just happened in my life? Long story, I won't tell it today because I have told it before. You can ask me about it another time. But for eight months, I'd sit in my prayer closet going, God, what's going on in my life? And God graciously, day by day, took me through issues to deal with my past before he would move me on. So the big thing is, God says, I will put the sins of the Father upon the Son for four generations, but Jesus leads us through that. So we've got to think about the future. This might be your moment today, where you stop and go, you know what, life's not going the way I thought it would. Why? God, would you help me to deal with the things of the past and show me the things of the future? This is your private moment here. Jehoiakim was in prison. You're not not in prison because you're here. But you might be in bondage. You might be locked away from your destiny. You might be in limbo land on a diversion waiting for God to lead you into something new. And God's saying, here's your moment. You and me, we're going to do business today. 
The other significant thing, the final thing that I want to highlight here is this. We're in Haggai for a reason. God is saying that we're in Haggai to hear the prophecies in order that we would understand God's got the same promise for us as he had for Zerubbabel. The Lord says, I want to make you my signet ring. That's why I love the testimony times. Zion people in the community proclaiming the message of Jesus. I love what Zelda shared. You know, we just shared with some girls why we do what we do. I had another meeting this week I didn't tell you about. It was with um, the local manager of Community Patrol. She comes in here, we're just chatting away. She goes, man, why do you, what, 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 the way you guys do stuff. She's just in awe. She's like, I thought church was when you got together on Sundays. I said, what's more than that? Because unless, if we talk good and don't do good, then what are we? We're just a clanging gong. But if my message is my action in the community, like Zelda said, we believe God calls us to love him and love other people. She just shook her head. She goes, that's awesome. She didn't come to church to hear that. Probably won't. But we're the signet ring. We're the demonstration of God's authority and God's resources and God's name in our town. And so maybe for you, if this isn't you over here, maybe this is you here. And I would ask, finally, for all of us, that we pick up this and head that way. That we would say we want to worship in spirit and truth. We want to partner with God and the mission of God. We want to be the representation of God. We want to be the message of God. Because it's all about Jesus and the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our community. So I'm landing this now for a time of contemplation. We're going to take maybe three minutes, four minutes. Because I want to build some space here for you to encounter God in one of these key areas. And I'm not going to call you out the front. I'm not going to lay on of hands and pray. I've got a buzz going on right now because I've seen testimonies of things that God's been doing with no one doing the praying except the individual doing business with Jesus. And you can do that where you're seated. Because the good thing is if you do it here where you're seated, then you can do it at home when you're seated. You can do it in your car when you're seated. You can do it in the cafe when you're seated. I mean, I'm happy to stand with you. I'm happy to journey with you. But for today, we just have this space where you come before God and say, look, God says it'll be so. Regardless of what my reality looks like, God says it'll be so. I have faith in him. I have hope in him. My confidence is in him. It's not going the way I planned, but it's going the way he planned. God, what would you say to me about my past in order that I could look forward into my future? What restoration do you want to do in my life today? And do business with God. I've taught you this before. The two keys to your freedom are repentance and forgiveness. What do you need to repent of and who do you need to forgive? Ask God, is there anyone I need to forgive in my life? Jan talked about this in communion just not not half an hour ago. Repentance and forgiveness. God, help me do business so that you would lift my head. By your grace and your mercy, you would lift my head and bring me back to the table. God, if you were choosing me to be a signet ring, what does it look like to partner with you to promote Jesus in our town? Let's just have a time of encounter. Lord, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come right now. Holy Spirit, you're in the room. You want to do business with people. You want to encounter us. Look, as Garth shared that testimony, we want more of you, God. We want more of your evidence of your power and your spirit in our lives. And only you can do that, God, by your mercy and grace. So as we sit here today, we invite the spirit of Jesus Christ to come and encounter us in a radical way.
where we would know. Remember Peter? He sat on the roof praying, and God gave him a message that changed the world that we know it for our sake. A message, God. Come today and encounter us, we pray. Lord, we bless your work that you're doing right now. Minister to us, I pray, by your Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.